0: just a great reminder that no matter where you are in life, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how great or small that may seem to you this morning, the solution uh, is the same. Uh, Christ has overcome. He has taken your place. He has redeemed you. He has set uh, you free. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, again, uh, just by becoming cursed in our place. And it is for freedom that we have been set free. And that's just an awesome reminder of that powerful truth this morning. We're in the midst of a series right now. We kind of started at the beginning of the year, and we've been looking at some common barriers many of us face. Um, And how those uh, barriers, those challenges can often be difficulties, uh, hurdles in our walk, in our relationship uh, with God, in in us becoming uh, the redeemed that Christ has uh, made us. And so far in this series, we've talked again about that barrier of anger, the barrier of that root of bitterness. Uh, We've talked about uh, pride. And and so uh, not only have we talked about these just in relationship to Uh, our walk with Christ, but how these really can also become barriers and obstacles in our relationships with one another. Now today I want to turn our attention to an, an issue, a barrier, that I think a lot of people are familiar with. You may be here this morning, you may struggle with this, or you may know someone. I think all of us at least know somebody who maybe has struggled with this barrier, the obstacle of depression, Of the estimated 17.5 million Americans who are affected by some form of depression, 9.2 million have what is called major or clinical depression. Now, it's interesting because women experience depression about twice as often as men. By the year 2020, the World Health Organization estimates that depression will be one of the Uh, major causes of the lost years of healthy life worldwide. Two-thirds of people suffering from depression do not get, or they just don't seek out the necessary treatment, while 80% of those who do kind of see some significant upturn and improvement in their lives. The economic cost of depression is estimated at $30 point billion a year just in the cost of human suffering alone. Depression has been kind of called the, um, the common cold of emotional illness. Depression is a whole body illness that kind of just affects um, a, a, um, a person physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, a person who suffers from depression, they say he can have problems eating, sleeping, working, just getting along with family members, friends, co-workers. People suffering from depression can experience a persistent, a depressed mood that is often characterized by feelings of just sadness or just kind of a sense of emptiness. Some common feelings that people suffering from depression may experience are kind of, again, just a very sad, a low, uh, empty, depressed mood. There can be a loss of interest in All activities, uh, feelings of worthlessness or guilt, condemnation, difficulty thinking, concentrating, or just making decisions, decreased energy, fatigue, kind of just this feeling of uh, being down, changes in appetite and or weight, oversleeping, early morning awakening, insomnia. Um, Some people even go so far as to just have thoughts or or plans of suicide. People suffering from depression can experience several of these symptoms I just listed at once on a daily basis and sometimes this can last for several weeks or months. Now the truth is every one of us gets depressed. You know, but we maybe go into it momentarily. We're able to recover, come out of it maybe in a couple of hours the next day. But for a lot of people, when they get into that place of depression, they don't know how to break free from that. Uh, even great Christians, great saints, experience depression. John Stott, who's a great Bible scholar and author, said Christians the the chief two. Christian occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. Again, if you think you're immune, and I've heard people talk about, you know, they they, uh, became depressed, and they were one of these people that thought, I've never thought I would ever become depressed. I have nothing to be depressed about. I don't understand this. And so sometimes we're shocked when it does happen to us, because we've thought of ourselves as one of those people, it'll never happen to me. I'm immune from this. And so this morning, I want to look at three cases uh, of some of the most godly men who really did struggle with depression and what they did in order to overcome that. Now, the first significant cause of depression is when we become physically worn out. Now, we've all been at that stage where we've kind of just depleted ourselves physically. Now, look at the life of Moses, and and again, we see a great example of this physical exhaustion. In Numbers 11, beginning there in verse 10, it says, Moses heard all of the families standing in front of their tents weeping. Now, that in and of itself, if you just, you know, lived in a neighborhood and everybody's standing outside their house weeping, that would be depressing, right? So Moses sees these families, they're in their tents, they're weeping, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses also became aggravated, and Moses said to the Lord, Why are you treating me, your servant, so miserably? What did I do to deserve the burden of a people? like this. Are they my children? Are they my responsibility? Am I their father? Is this why you have told me to carry them in my arms like a nurse carries a baby to the land you swore to give to their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? and they keep complaining and saying give us meat i can't carry all these people by myself the load is far too heavy i'd rather you killed me than treated me like this please spare me this misery wow that i mean talk about unloading here's a man of god who was so miserable so wretched so overwhelmed, so discouraged, so depressed that he just kind of gets to this place in what's happening and he says, God, I am so overwhelmed, I would rather you just kill me and spare me this misery. Moses had what I would call a people problem. Too many people, too many problems and he didn't have the resources to deal with it all. Moses was the first pastor ever to lead a mega church, and he seemed kind of intent on doing this all alone. Moses, at this time, he's leading about two million people. Two million people, and he feels like he has the sole responsibility for every one of those two million people. And Moses carried unbelievable, even unrealistic burdens and he felt responsible for everybody and everything that was happening. And he didn't know what to do. And eventually, it just began to become too much that he becomes miserable and depressed and desperate. You get the sense in here that, that as the people are feeling the weight and burden of their personal situations, they're coming to Moses, they're expecting Moses to kind of figure it all out for them. They're complaining about the food, the terrain, their neighbors, their neighbors. And over a period of time, it just begins to take a very visible toll on Moses. And here's the thing. When you become physically worn out, you kind of become a candidate. You kind of begin to open yourself up for depression. A person who is always available to everyone at any time isn't worth much when they are available. Moses was physically worn out. And unless he did something about that, it was going to eventually take him to a place of depression. Exodus 18 also records a very interesting event in the life of Moses that may have added to this sense of physical exhaustion as well. In verse 13 it says, The next day Moses sat as usual, which means it was very common for him to do this, to hear the people's complaints against each other. So he's kind of sitting almost as a judge. They were lined up in front of him from morning until evening, all Day. When Moses' father in law Jethro saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, What are you really accomplishing here? That's a great question, sometimes we need to ask ourselves. What are you accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do this all alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, Because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me. I am the one who settles the case between quarreling parties. He's the original Judge Judy. I inform the people of God's decree. I give them instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. So here's Moses from sunup till sundown, standing there counseling, settling disputes, and dispensing justice. He had people coming to him nonstop, and the scripture says it eventually became physically draining. Some people are depressed. They're down, they're low, they're overwhelmed because they are so busy and they are so drained from meeting the physical demands and expectations of other people. Continual people problems and ongoing relational turmoil can lead to physical exhaustion, again, which just opens the door or just takes you further down the path toward depression. Now, once we reach physical exhaustion, The second most common cause of depression sets in, and that is emotional exhaustion. Now, we can look at the prophet Jonah for this one. Like Moses, what kind of started off in the life of Jonah as physical exhaustion, it kind of just soon gives way to emotional exhaustion. Jonah is called by God, you may remember this story. He's to go to Nineveh, he's to preach repentance to the Ninevites, and instead of Uh, obeying God. He boards a ship, goes in the opposite direction that God calls him to go. He has a horrible cruise thanks to some very stormy choppy seas and he ends up being thrown overboard because the crew believes that he is kind of a curse and in order to appease that they throw Jonah overboard and before you know it Jonah has a whale house for a jailhouse, and he has to spend the night on a foam blubber mattress. When the fish finally regurgitates him Jonah then goes, and you remember he just preaches this revival, citywide revival, um, in a city about the size of maybe Philadelphia called Nineveh. And it was a really, really, really short, inspiring sermon because he just goes to the people and he just says, repent. And they repented. That's it. All he had to say was, repent. And the people repented. Now, as he goes there, he doesn't have a Holiday Inn or a Hyatt Regency. He does not have an air-conditioned automobile to ride in. He does not have a microphone um, and a public address system. And on top of that, the Bible says the heat at that time was so great and so overwhelming and a hot wind is blowing upon him and the sun beating down upon him. And I know that just sounds very inviting right now, doesn't it? But as he experiences all this, the Bible says he's almost to the point of having a heat stroke. Jonah 4.3 responds to uh, Jonah's desperate prayer. He says, just kill me now, Lord. Kind of sounds a little like Moses. He said, I'd rather be dead than alive because nothing I have predicted is going to happen. So, Jonah's physical exhaustion, everything that he did to flee from the Lord, everything that he endured as God brought him back to the place of Nineveh, then all of a sudden, emotional exhaustion begins to have its toll on him. Whereas Moses had a people problem, Jonah has a pouting problem. Jonah didn't like the way God was doing things, and it made Jonah angry. And Jonah was angry because instead of God sending judgment to the Ninevites, which is what Jonah wanted, and though the Ninevites deserved it, you know, God's grace is oftentimes we get what we don't deserve. And so instead of sending judgment, which Jonah thought the Ninevites deserved, God sent them what they didn't deserve, and that was repentance and grace. And God sent a revival through Jonah's message of repentance Now, why didn't Jonah want God to send revival? Because Jonah was an Israelite. And Jonah loved the nation, the people of Israel. And Jonah's feelings were very bitter toward Nineveh. It's a lot of like some of the feelings that we carry in our attitude, maybe towards those who are perpetrating these crimes of evil in Islam. And we're kind of, you know what, let's just bomb them, let's just nuke them back to the stone ages. And this is kind of the attitude that Jonah had as an Israelite toward the Ninevites. The Ninevites were a bandit race, they were murderers, they were wicked, they were vile, they were always a threat and a thorn in the side of Israel. Jonah wanted God to just wipe them off the face of the earth. So Jonah basically says to God, God, I know the way you work. I know you, I know the minute I go into Nineveh and I preach repentance, I know you are going to turn the hearts of the people and you're going to deal graciously with them, and I don't want that for the Ninevites. And that's exactly what God did. Jonah went to the nation of Israel, and he, he just told them, repent or face God's judgment And they repented, and God just sent revival. So here's Jonah. He's physically exhausted. He's angry. He's frustrated with God. And like I said, when we talked about that barrier of anger, anger internalized. When when you just keep anger bottled up, it will eventually give way to depression. Let me tell you something about depression. Depression comes Many times when something we love and value very much is threatened or taken from us. Depression comes many times when something that you love or something that you value, when that is taken from you or it is threatened to be taken from you. It may be a possession. It may be a loved one. It may be some hope, whatever. Something we cherish, something we value is taken or threatened to be taken from us, and then we have this unresolved grief. That grief may turn to anger, and that anger can manifest itself into depression. There are a lot of angry, bitter people who are in the second stage of depression. They don't realize it because the things that they love and value and cherish and have hoped for have been threatened or taken from them. And that's the way it was for Jonah. Jonah, like Moses, both of them experienced physical exhaustion, which led them to emotional exhaustion. And once that happens, the physical exhaustion gives way to the emotional exhaustion. Then comes the third most common cause of depression, and that is spiritual exhaustion. And the prophet Elijah gives us a perfect picture, an example of that progression. Listen to the prayer Elijah prayed in 1 Kings 19.4. Then Elijah went alone into the desert, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, Elijah said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Now, what was happening in the life of Elijah that led him to pray a prayer like that? Well, interestingly enough, like Moses and Jonah, Elijah was also someone who was physically exhausted. At this time, he had been going without food, For a long time, he had just finished a uh, 30-mile cross-country run. So here is a man whose strength was gone. He was physically worn out. He was uh, just physically debilitated. And he, like Moses and Jonah, was just at this point a physical exhaustion when he said, Lord, I just want you to take my life from me. See, Moses had a people problem. Jonah had a pouting problem. Elijah had a pity problem. And the reason Elijah was pitying himself was because Jezebel, that wicked queen of Israel who was married to the wicked king Ahab, had made a very threatening promise to Elijah. And the threat that Queen Jezebel made was she was going to make Elijah a foot shorter from the top. In other words, she was going to behead him. And the reason she made that threat was because he had basically had 400 of Queen Jezebel's prophets and 450 of Ahab's prophets killed after winning a showdown on Mount Carmel. And when Jezebel vowed revenge toward Elijah, Elijah becomes fearful and he flees for his life. Now here's Elijah, this great, this mighty prophet of God. Who had been fearless for years, and one woman's threat sends him running for the hills. He just turns around and he runs to the edge of the desert, and there he gets depressed. Elijah kind of goes from a showdown to a letdown, from a mountaintop experience to the valley, kind of with his head hanging between his legs. He goes from standing before 450 prophets of Baal to running from one woman. So Elijah, in the midst of all of this, he just kind of becomes a prime candidate for depression. He's physically tired. He's emotionally drained because somebody had threatened his life. And so he becomes weary, worried, fearful. He begins to feel sorry for himself. This is where the pity starts coming in. And this opened him up to spiritual exhaustion. And so as he's sitting there under this tree, and he's wallowing in his pity, his spiritual exhaustion, he says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I alone am left. That's that spirit of pity And now they're trying to kill me, too. Elijah, physically, emotionally exhausted, becomes spiritually depleted, saying, it's just me alone now, Lord. It's just you and me against the world. I'm all that's left. God, no one is as faithful to you as I have been. And here's the thing, folks. When you become spiritually exhausted, you will exaggerate spiritual things you will begin to overstate spiritual things. So here's Elijah in his spiritual exhaustion, thinking he's the only one left, he's the only one faithful to God, when the truth was there were several thousand in the nation of Israel who had never bowed or worshipped Baal. When we are spiritually exhausted, we will begin to exaggerate spiritual things. And Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And they've set their sights on me, and now they're coming to kill me too. And so here's poor Elijah under the broom tree having a pity party. Everybody was against him. Again, the truth is, the fact is, not everybody was against him. One person, one woman, and he just took that, and he just exaggerated, and he just blows that up. One woman, and her threat was empty If Jezebel really wanted to kill Elijah, she wouldn't have sent a messenger. She would have sent an army, a hit team, to take him out. Jezebel let Elijah get away to the desert. Why? Because she didn't really want to kill him. She just wanted to make him a coward in front of the nation of Israel. That was really her plan. But because Elijah's physically, emotionally exhausted, he wasn't able to see that. Why? Because when we get depressed, we always exaggerate the negative. Everything looks bad. Everything looks hopeless. If you're depressed, the world is going to pot. Everything's going to the dogs. Your attitude generally stinks. It becomes your filter. It becomes the way you look at everything in life. So here you have these three godly men, Moses, Jonah, Elijah. All three of them are physically, spiritually emotionally exhausted. All three of them are depressed. They're ready. They're wanting to die. Moses had his eyes on other people. Jonah had his eyes on himself. Elijah had his eyes on circumstances. And none of them, none of them had their eyes on God. That's the problem. And when did each of them get into trouble? They got into trouble spiritually when they were already in trouble physically and emotionally please understand that you are at the greatest risk spiritually when you are at risk physically and emotionally. The devil understands that and oftentimes why he will begin the attack and the physical and the emotional because if he can get you drained in those two areas, it just makes the attack and the spiritual all that much easier. The devil understands that. He knows you're in difficulty and that's when he kind of just moves in for the kill. The kind of friend you have in the devil is if you were in quickstand, he'd just stand there and pat you on the head. But I want you to see what God does for these men because he wants to do the same thing for you and I. What God did for Moses physically, he gave Moses 70 elders to help them. him. Numbers eleven sixteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Summon before me 70 of the leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you, I will come down and talk to you there. And I love this. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you, so you will not have to carry it alone. Folks, most of us are doing things that are going to physically wear us out And a lot of times those are things God never intended for us to do or to do alone. Did you know there's enough time in every day to do gracefully everything God wants us to do or has called us to do? It's true. Moses put himself in a place, in a position where he was doing something God didn't want him to do. And Moses spiritualizes it by just saying, oh, I'm just serving the Lord. We do that all the time. So make a list of everything that you're doing that you kind of think is so all-important. And then look at that list and eliminate some things. Delegate other things and then dedicate the rest. There are some things you're doing other people can do. That's how Moses learned to delegate and other things he just eliminated. So God made a physical provision for Moses. God wants to make a physical provision for you this morning. What physical provision did God make for Elijah? 1 Kings 19.5 says, Elijah laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. How many of you have that same vision pretty much every morning? (laughs) Elijah looked around and saw some bread on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he laid down again. Interesting. Elijah says, God, just kill me and get it over with. And God says, here, son, have something to eat. Take a nap. Relax. Elijah sleeps some more, wakes up to another meal. I have found in my experience that what some people need that are suffering from depression is just some good nutrition and proper rest. I've had families at hospice who are there with the loved one, and they're in that process of dying, and, and it's a, it is a process that is uh, very agonizing. There are just a lot of times twists and turns, things that happen that you're not prepared for, and so most families in that situation, they kind of go into hospice, they're there with that family member, and, and therefore focus their attention everything is upon that individual and so there is so much that is being poured out of them into that situation that oftentimes they really neglect to take care of themselves i've had families that have been in a hospice situation sometimes for a week at a time and and they feel very called to be there all the time. They don't want to leave. There's just a sense if I go and something happens, I'll feel guilty. There's just a sense where they feel like I need to be here. And I understand that. And so often what happens is when they're there for an extended period of time, again, they're not, they're not looking at their own needs. They're looking at the needs of this person who is in the process of dying. And so often what happens is they just get physically worn out. They, they, they haven't eaten sometimes in days. And, and what ends up happening with that exhaustion and just that lack of nutrition is it just begins to take an emotion, uh, a toll on them emotionally. And it begins to affect the whole family. And so oftentimes what I will do in a situation like that is I will go out and I will get a big meal for the family and take it into hospice, set the table, and bring the family in to sit them down and eat. And I'm telling you what, I've literally watched families transform right in front of my eyes when they just get some proper nutrition. All of a sudden, that they feel better. They feel more able to deal with what they're dealing with. And so sometimes, again, all you need is proper nutrition. When I've dealt with people who are suicidal, oftentimes the best thing you can do for them, take them out for a nice, juicy steak. I'm not trying to be cute about that. Again, oftentimes people that get to that point are people who are just physically worn out, they've not been eating or taking care of themselves, and all of a sudden when they just get some food in their stomach, all of a sudden their perspective changes. God provided Elijah with the retreat center, bread from heaven's bakery, water from heaven's well, and Elijah just rested. Folks, there are times we need to do that as well. What did God do for Jonah? Jonah 4 6, and the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread it, its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased some of his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So, again, there's this hot sun, this hot wind. You know, he's got sunstroke going on there, and God just causes this beautiful, big, luxurious green, soft, tender vine just to kind of grow over Jonah and shade him. The Bible says that God did that for this purpose to deliver Jonah from his grief. God knew Jonah had a physical need. If you're depressed, it may be that you just need to go see a doctor, get a checkup. It may be just that you need a place of rest, maybe a vacation, maybe a change of diet. The answer, though deeply spiritual, just may be something intensely practical. That's the physical provision God made. So what did God do emotionally for these men of God? Moses saw people, but God gave Moses a promise if you read further in that story, God tells Moses, the battle is not yours, Moses. It's mine. God tells Moses, you look to me and I will take care of them. What did God do emotionally for Elijah? Elijah God showed Elijah his power. Elijah was afraid of a woman and God said, all right, you're afraid of this woman. Sit up here on the mountain. I'm going to show you something. And God causes this earthquake to come through the land, and he said, I'm not in the earthquake. God causes this mighty fire to come, and God says, I'm not in the fire. God caused a mighty wind to blow and told Elijah, I am not in the wind. And then there comes this still, small voice, and God says, there I am. We get all blown out of shape, So easily overwhelmed by earthquakes, wind, and fire. But oftentimes, if you'll just stop, tune in to that still, small voice of God, in that quietness and that stillness, confidence, God's peace will just take over. It'll just possess your souls and calm your emotions. Elijah asked for pity, but God showed him power. What about Jonah for his pout? God gave him perspective. God had to take away the vine that was providing Jonah's shade so he could see there's an entire city of people out here that are perishing. And God gives Jonah a new perspective and just says, hey, buddy, get your eyes off of yourself. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is so, so great, but the workers are so few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send out more workers for his field. There are so many lost, hurting, broken people out there. And many, many times, we're so caught up in our own little petty issues like Jonah, and we don't see it or care. Let me just... uh, go to what I think is probably the greatest advice um, to sum all of this up. And Jesus gives us to that in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. It's the final slide there. And he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. For the yoke fits perfectly and the burden I give you is light. This morning as we kind of just prepare um, our hearts for communion, again here is just a perfect opportunity of something that Jesus has taken on for us in his death that the broken bread, the wine in the chalice represents his blood, and it really symbolizes the death that he died for us and in our place. He kind of did the heavy work so that we could come and rest and find peace for our souls as we partake of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Today is an opportunity for us who are are carrying heavy burdens this morning. This is an opportunity to come and just to lay that down and to take up that which has been provided, the yoke that is light, the burden that is gentle. It's provided for in the bread and in the juice this morning. We leave the heavy, we leave the overwhelming, and we just simply receive the gentle And we receive the rest. He says the yoke fits perfectly. This is perfect for anything you're carrying, any burden you're carrying this morning. This is perfect. And as we come and just remember, as we receive what he's done for us, again, the promise for us is you will find rest for your souls. The yoke fits perfectly and the burden he gives you is light. We don't have to go to the cross. He went to the cross. We don't have to die for our sins. He he did the heavy lifting. He did the heavy work. What we get to do is light. It is easy. And it's perfect for what we may be going through here this morning especially if you're here and you're weary and carrying heavy burdens. This is a perfect fit for that. Father, we just thank you this morning.